We're going to be in First uh, Peter, so if you will, turn with me to First Peter. You know, uh, I was reading a, a study that was uh, done, it was about a decade ago. Two psychologists were, were seeking to determine people's ability to assess their own knowledge. So, so what they did is they, they gathered hundreds of participants and they asked them on a scale of one to seven, how well they understood certain things. Many of them were common things. And so, for instance, they said, how well do you understand a zipper on a scale of one to seven? And so the participants, you know, having used zippers most of their lives, you know, said, yeah, they understood zippers pretty well. They, they, they on a scale of one to seven, you know, put, you know, five, six, and sevens. And then the psychologist said, okay. I'm going to give you a piece of paper, a pen, and give you some time. I want you to describe how a zipper works. And you guessed it, people couldn't explain a zipper. I mean, I'll be completely honest with you. When I first read of this study about a year ago, I started thinking and going, I have no idea how a zipper works. Like, it's like magic, right? You you try to think of it. Think how a zipper works. It's difficult to explain how a zipper works. And so the psychologists, you know, they weren't actually done. So then afterwards, they said, okay, now on a scale of one to seven, describe your depth of knowledge on a zipper. And you guessed it, their scores plummeted. Our gut reaction to various things, many common themes as it relates to sort of knowledge or understanding, we think we know more than we actually know. We are disillusioned by our lack of knowledge from time to time. We sort of overestimate what we know, how much we know, the depth of our knowledge. But it's not just zippers, is it, right? It's not just common things, right? Some of the most important things, some of the most intimate things are sometimes the hardest things to understand. Things like purpose, Like, how how can I find purpose in my life? And and how do I know when I've found it? Or, how can I have hope? And and where would I find hope if I were, were looking for it? Or, how do I know if my best attempts at pleasing God, how do I know if God actually is pleased with me? Or for us this morning, why Easter? Why is Easter important? What application or relevance does Easter play for us? Well, this morning, whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time or if you haven't come to church very often, whether you're seasoned in this and know your Bibles or whether you don't know your Bibles very well, my hope is that the depth of your understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, whatever you came in here, if you scored a, you know, a three or a four, my, my hope and prayer is that maybe you'll understand the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, the relevance of the resurrection in a deeper way this morning. 
This morning, we're just going to look at three verses. We're going to look at three verses in the book of 1 Peter. Now, the author is Peter. Peter is the apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter's that sort of roller coaster disciple. He went from the, the heights of, uh, of, of worshiping Jesus when he confessed, Jesus, you're the Christ. And then he sort of plummeted at the end of Jesus' life when he flat out rejected Jesus. Peter wrote this letter to various churches in Asia Minor. Think modern day Turkey. And Peter wrote this letter to encourage these churches. These churches were going through a lot. Persecution, hostility, trials. And so he writes to encourage them that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just the truth, but it is the hope that they needed to build their life on. Peter himself calls these Christians exiles. Right? As Israel in the Old Testament were exiles in Babylon, so these Christians were exiles living in the midst of hardship. So he writes to encourage them about the power of the resurrection for their lives. Now, these three verses, they're dense, but they're glorious. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the 19th century uh, preacher in England, he called these three verses a string of pearls, a diamond necklace, a cabinet of jewels. And then I paraphrase, I'll paraphrase him. Then he says, uh, no, not, not, not really. Actually, th- th- those are all insufficient. I mean, this is way better than that, as you'll soon see. So the big idea this morning in these three verses is simply this, and it should be behind me. The resurrection secures our living hope and the resurrection secures a certain inheritance. Let let me read the text and then we'll jump into it. First Peter verse chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Go go there to verse 3. We'll work our way through the text In verse 3, Peter announces a blessing, doesn't he? Right? A little bit like when you gather around a kitchen table at night and you, you know, you pray and you you thank God and bless God for the food. It's a little bit like that. He Peter blesses God. But why? I mean, what is what is this blessing that's sort of welling up inside of Peter that he just wants to bless God for? Well, look. Look at the string of pearls we find starting in verse 3. We read that, that, that he, he blesses God because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter praises God. He blesses God because sort of dangled before Peter is a living hope. 
a living hope. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a reality-changing truth for Peter. So, So as Peter, one of the disciples, was walking with Jesus, he put all of his hopes, all of his dreams in a man, Jesus Christ. And then he saw that man die. And buried with that man were all of his hopes and all of his dreams. And all Peter had to comfort him was the memory of his abandonment of Jesus. I mean, it must have haunted Peter. But, but, but Easter, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you realize that that, that, that story, it's, it's not an underdog story. I mean, I love a good underdog story. The resurrection of Jesus is not an underdog story. Jesus, time and time again, proclaimed that he was the Messiah, that he would suffer and die and be buried and come back to life. He over and over again said, I am king over heaven and earth and king even over death itself. And so on Easter morning, Peter learned first from the women that the tomb was empty. But Peter, as uh, Phil read earlier, P- Peter had to see for himself, right? Peter needed evidence, and so he, he, he runs. I'm guessing it was an ugly run. It, but it was a determined run, wasn't it? And so he goes there, and he sees the evidence for himself. First-hand evidence, Jesus is gone. And you can imagine Peter just going like, what is going on? His, his mind is racing, trying to put the pieces back together. Like, what is going on? Where is Jesus? And what does this all mean? Luckily for Peter, Jesus soon appears to him. And all of Peter's hope are once again there. They're restored. Or, or better put, his hopes are reborn. Now, we, we use the word hope like it's sort of like a wish. Like, I hope Gonzaga wins the national championship tomorrow, okay? I hope. I a little bit pray that it happens. But, 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 but when we use the word hope naturally, it's like a verbal crossing of the fingers, right? It's just kind of like a wish. It's, I, I hope this happens. That's not the hope that's the, that Peter's talking about here. Hope in the Bible is reliable. It's secure. It will happen. Because C- look at the thing that's describing it. It's not just hope. It's a, a living hope. It's hope that is alive. Why? Because it's attached to a living Lord. And so what you see is Peter saying, I have this certain hope, a living hope, because he believes in a living Lord. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just that Jesus is restored to Peter. It's way bigger than that. What what the resurrection means for us is that that Jesus is vindicated. That, That all that Jesus said, all that Jesus was, all that Jesus did, All that Jesus promised is true. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. It's a bit like this. Years ago, I found out that someone made a purchase on my credit card that was not me. Some of you 
have had this experience before, right? It's an experience of identity theft. And so I called the credit card company and I had to tell them and prove that I was me, right? That I am the owner of this card. And having done that, having successfully proven my identity, the credit card company vindicated me and they cut off, you know, that person who was pretending to be me, that imposter. Well, in like manner, the resurrection of Jesus, it was God the Father's stamp of approval vindicating Jesus. That Jesus was who he says he was. That he did what he said and what he, what, what he was meant to accomplish in the messianic plan. He perfectly accomplished everything of the Father's will for the redemption of the world. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished. Vindication. You realize this is why you can't just get rid of the resurrection, right? Maybe some in our world want to, but if there is no resurrection, if Jesus did not get up from the grave, bodily be raised from the grave, you can't believe anything that Jesus said. He is not a trustworthy savior. But the resurrection means Jesus is vindicated, that he is exactly who he says he is. That's the importance and power of the resurrection. And that's the hope that was dangling before Peter and all of us this morning. That that, that Jesus is risen from the grave, vindicated in his identity and in his purpose. And not only that, but because of his vindication, we too can be vindicated through that resurrected Lord. You see, Christ's vindication wasn't just his vindication. His vindication is now our vindication. Right? Did you see that in verse 3? Right? But because of God's, God's mercy, through the resurrection, we now live too. There is a living hope. A living hope that through Christ's death and resurrection, he has caused us to be born again. Or maybe better translated, born anew. Now, I remember when I was a new Christian, this whole idea of being born again, it was just weird to me. Okay, it, it, it was like, that, that's just a weird phrase. Well, it, it might sound strange for you, but, but in order to sort of understand it, you've got to set this whole language of being born again in the context of the whole Bible. You see, all humans are born alike. All, all humans have a common ancestor. We are born in Adam. Now, what that means isn't that we like look like Adam or we have the same color eyes or whatever. That's not what being born in Adam means. What it means to be born in Adam means that we are born in Adam's condition. You see, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They walked away from God. They wanted to be God. They did that which God told them not to do. And ever since then, trickling down all of history, all humanity now does likewise. We, we too walk away from God. We too sin against God. We too want to be God and call all the shots. And so it's sort of the, the, the drama of the Old Testament is, okay, if we're all born in Adam, what's the antidote to that? Like, how, 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 do, how can you stop 
walking in Adam's ways? How, how do you stop living like Adam? And if you're saying like, well, no, I, I, you know, maybe that's not true. I think the perfect example of this is children, right? right? You don't have to teach a, a child to lie or to stomp their feet and say no. I mean, children are just born rebels. And so are we. And so the drama of the Old Testament, the sort of drama of our lives and our world, is that we sin. Now, sin looks different from person to person, culture to culture. But we all sin. We all walk away from God. So, what's the answer? What's the antidote? Is it just try harder? Do better? Be a little less like Adam and Eve? All of those are just a cheap knockoff. The reality dangling before us is, is sort of the crown jewel of an answer. God in his mercy gives the solution. And the solution is a better Adam. A second Adam. A perfect Adam. It's, when Jesus comes, it's sort of like a redo of Genesis 3. Adam walked away from God. Jesus walks with God. Adam disobeyed God. Jesus fully obeyed God. Adam was judged by God. The judgment that came on the world fell on Jesus. You see, what should have happened in Genesis 3 was this. Once Eve took the fruit, sinned, what Adam should have done is he should have stood up and said, I will die for her sins. I will die. Take my life for hers. That's what Adam should have done. Adam didn't do that. But the second Adam did, didn't he? Jesus stood up and said, I didn't sin. I didn't break the covenant. I lived a perfect life. But take my life. Take my life as a substitute for theirs. And he bore the curse of sin, right? right? The curse that should be on all of us Well, it came on Jesus instead, and we get his blessing, the blessing of his righteousness. That's what it means to be born again. It doesn't mean that you, you like, physically look differently. It means that you, by faith, are no longer in the first Adam. You're in the second Adam. You're reborn into a better Adam. And I think our world kind of sets it up all wrong, right? See if you can relate to this as it relates to the sort of problem and solution. Our world will say, well, well, the problem is out there. It's those bad people. There's always a tension between the good people and the bad people, and the bad people are never us. They're always them, whoever them are. And then the solution is just look inside, right? The answer is is look within, find a deeper reality, find a, a truer identity in yourself. Look within and you'll find your answer. Make your own identity. Make your own reality. That's the answer. Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity says the problem is actually inside of us. And the solution is outside of us. The problem is that we're all in Adam. We all look and act like Adam. Metaphorically and literally. Solution is outside of us. Not that we could be a better Adam, but that God has provided 
a better Adam in Jesus Christ. Who, when we put our faith, and you see that word faith there in verse 5, when we put our faith in that second Adam, Jesus Christ, we are reborn. So this morning, let me just ask you, as it relates to hope, what are you hoping in? Are you hoping in a better year than last year? Maybe you're hoping for a promotion or hoping for that this year you'd find love or healing. Or maybe you're just hoping to get some rest. We all have hope. Hope's not a bad thing. Far from that, hope's a Bible thing. The problem is, we all look for these things to, that, that, that we think once we secure, once we secure these sort of things in our life that we are hoping for, then we'll be happy. Then life will be well. But then you get them, and you're like, I need something else. Like last night, right? I was hoping, crossing my fingers, I was at the edge of my seat as Gonzaga was, I thought about to lose, and then they win. And I'm like, I should be happy, Right? But now I'm like, no, I need another victory, right? There's always a game. There's always a next season. You know, we, we hope for one thing. We hope for one promotion, but then you got to work your way up. There's always more. Peter has a hope for us this morning. A living hope. Peter's new hope wasn't just that Jesus was restored to Peter. Peter's living hope that he's dangling before all of us, that he first dangled before his own heart, was that Peter could be restored to Jesus. That's the power of the resurrection, that we, through faith, can be restored back to God. Regret, restored. Shame, covered. Guilt, pardon. Conscience, clean. That's the living hope. Second, I, I want to look at this inheritance, starting in verse 4. We'll call it pearl number 2. Uh, this inheritance that the resurrection secures in verse 4 and 5. And, and, and notice something really interesting, okay, as it relates to this inheritance. Th- this inheritance is kept for us, and secondly, we are kept for it. Okay, so, so, so starting in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Inheritance are sort of family business when you think about it, right? Parents, grandparents give inheritance to children. Sometimes we can even be jealous or envious of people who, just because of their last name or just because of the family that they were born into, have financial security for the rest of their life. Right? This is how inheritances work. And yet, we, we all know this too, that in this world, inheritances, they can be squandered, can't they? You can get an inheritance and you can lose it. We even see that in the Old Testament, in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there was an inheritance given to God's people. The land. God said, you are my people. I'm going to give you an inheritance. And the inheritance is this piece of property. And you all have property rights. 
And that's what he gives them. And even as they are sort of marching their way out of Egypt to the promised land, to that inheritance, what is it that gets them up out of bed in the morning? What are they thinking about as they go to bed at night? What's sort of dangled and enticing them to keep on marching through the wilderness? It's their inheritance. Keep on going. The land is yours, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so like the old, uh, Israel in the Old Testament, as, as she sort of wandered through the wilderness, enticed by this inheritance, well, we too have an inheritance. And it's dangling before us to entice us as well. And, and did you notice the, the, the three sort of words that Peter uses to describe this inheritance? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So let's just, just look at these, right? Many things perish. Okay, this is a stupid example, but let me just give you an example. The, the, my most favorite object or thing I've ever had, I think, in my entire life that you could buy with money, right, was a basketball. Okay, it was genuine leather. It was the first basketball I ever palmed. I'm pretty sure it was the first basketball I ever dunked. I loved this basketball. When I went to college, I slept with this basketball. Okay, don't judge me. We're all weird, okay? Okay? And then one day, someone on my, my floor said, hey, can I borrow your ball? And I said, bring that ball back. Well, he didn't. He lost it. And he's like, I'll buy you a new one. And I'm like, you can't buy me a new one. Right? I mean, things perish, right? Right? Things that we love, things that we cherish, they perish. But this inheritance doesn't perish. Second, it doesn't spoil this inheritance, right? The idea is sort of undefiled. This past week, my two year old son found some milk that had been setting out all day. And I tried to explain that milk sitting out most of the day spoils. But then again, I just decided, you know, he, he needed to figure out what spoiled was for himself. <laughs> milk spoils. This inheritance does not. And then thirdly, this inheritance will not fade. All right, for you gardeners out there, this inheritance is not an annual, it's a perennial. It's not going to wither up and die when it gets cold. You see, there's sort of a contrast here, isn't there, right? The contrast between the old inheritance and a new and better and more glorious inheritance. The old inheritance of the land, at times, it was ravished. It it was destroyed by invading armies. The, The old inheritance, it was defiled. First, by other nations, and then second, it was defiled by their own sin, by their own idolatry. And this old inheritance of the land, it faded. It was parched with the drought of God's judgment because of sin. Not this inheritance. This, 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 this inheritance is better, way better. You see, the Old Testament, that inheritance, it was just a foreshadowing. It was like an appetizer of the better and greater inheritance that would come on God's people one day. And this inheritance, it's not going to perish, not going to be polluted, and it's not going to fade over time. Now, why? 
We'll get, it, we'll get in a moment to what it is, but, but why? Do you see the P.O. box of this inheritance? Do you see where it's located? Do you see where it exists? Right? The Fort Knox of this world. Heaven. It's kept in heaven. That's its address. That's where it's being kept. You see, our inheritance isn't just a land or some property or some city or even a a new world. It's far better than that. And it's hinted at even in the Old Testament. As God was saying, hey, your inheritance is going to be a land, he then turns to Aaron, the first priest, and says, yeah, but you're not going to get a share of that inheritance. You're going to get something else. I will be your inheritance, Aaron. You see, the inheritance, what is this? What is this inheritance kept in heaven? Well, who, who exists in heaven? Who lives in heaven? Whose reality is heaven? You see, the inheritance is nothing short of God. That's what God's people get. That's what the resurrection secures. You get God and all of his promises and all of his blessings. You get him. That's your inheritance. Trade that every day for, I don't care how good the property is. The inheritance is God himself. And then verse five, the salvation that he gives to his people because of his son's life, death, and resurrection. Now, not only is is our inheritance kept for us by God, right? Verse five, we're kept for our inheritance, right? I mean, it would be enough if we could just like not squander our inheritance, that God himself is sort of protecting it. But it goes better than, it's better than that. It goes deeper than that. Verse 5 takes it a step further. The same power of God that raised Christ from the death, dead not just keeps our inheritance, but we, God's people, are kept for it. Do you see that? By God's power, we are being guarded. We are being shielded. We're being kept under guard, protected. It's sort of like the witness protection program, right? You know what that is, right? You've all seen movies about this, this kind of governmental organization, right? People are protected, and so they're hidden. We've seen enough movies to know that the mob or the bad guys, they always find them, right? Not, not this time. Not this time. God, in his infinite power and in his infinite wisdom, guards and protects and shields the church for that very inheritance. I mean, some of you might struggle with the idea of assurance. Like, how do I know if I'm assured that, you know, I'll I'll gain God or I'll I'll be saved or I'll be redeemed or I, I can have a relationship with God? Like, how do I know? We think about our past sin, our present sin, or maybe even our future sin, and we think, how can I be assured that God will forgive me of all of those sins? Well, I think this text is pretty clear. Don't look at your past. Don't look at your life. Don't look at your sin. Don't look inward. Look at the verse. Who caused, in the text, this is rhetorical, so you don't need to answer it, but... Who caused 
people to be reborn? Who, who, who gives the gift of mercy in the text? Who guards the inheritance and who grants the inheritance? It's God from top to bottom. God raised Christ. God showed us mercy. God made us anew. God gave himself. God protects us. And God protects us even from ourselves. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. It's his work. It's his and his alone. He is the risen Savior. So if you struggle with assurance, let me just suggest, don't look at yourself. Don't look at your behavior. Don't look at your life. Look at God. It's his power. It's his might. It's his strength. It's his work. And it's always been this way. This has been God's mode of operation all along. Just think back for a moment to the book of Exodus. God brings God's people out of Egypt and he delivers them. He he provides salvation for them and and they kind of form, they gather at the Red Sea and God said, I'm going to deliver you by this mighty act, this miraculous act and I'm going to part the Red Sea and you're going to walk through it and the judgment is going to fall on the Egyptians and you are going to be delivered. But, but you see, salvation doesn't just end there. Salvation is not just about the mighty acts of God. You see, salvation means that God is calling people to himself. He, God was calling people to walk through the waters to Mount Sinai so he could establish a relationship with him. That's what the Ten Commandments are. That's what the Old Covenant was. It was a formal relationship between God and his people saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. But it all changed when the second Adam came. It all got better. There was a greater inheritance because no longer would God just deliver and save his people from the tyranny of an enemy like the Egyptians. Now he would save and deliver them from the tyranny of their own sin. And that is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. It's the long-awaited prophetic promise that salvation has arrived. It's fulfilled. It's complete, full, final, triumphantly. God is your inheritance and all the blessings of God, including salvation, meaning you can have a relationship with him, restored in his presence. That's our inheritance. And Jesus gives it to you through his life, death, and resurrection. Do you see why now Spurgeon says that that these three verses are like a, a string of pearls? One author put it this way. Peter uses negative terms to describe this inheritance. Just think about it, right? Undefiled, right? He used negative terms to, um, uh, to describe this inheritance because its reality surpasses our present comprehension. Like, we can't comprehend this inheritance of gaining God in the positive. The only way we can understand the goodness of this, the glory of this, the truth of this, is to think of it in the negative. Right? We do this about heaven too, right? Heaven is that place where there is no tears, right? We can only think about it in the negative. Like thinking of just infinite joy, it doesn't make sense to us. But we can comprehend no tears. 
Well, as it relates to this inheritance, it's almost as if we can't truly understand it in the positive. We got to only understand it in what it's not. This string of theological pearls and truth, it's just way too good to be true. It's like one of those things that you just pinch yourself, right? Did that really happen? Did Suggs really make that basket? Sorry, Gonzaga's just on my mind. That wasn't... That's the, the, the pearls held out before us this morning. That because Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection, we can have our inheritance of God and the salvation in him. And as a result, be reborn in the second Adam. So coming full circle. Why does Peter, and we'll close in this, why does Peter in verse 3 worship God, you know, Thank God. Why is he so grateful? Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in 1870 preached on these three verses. He had seven points. I only had two. You're welcome. His last point, number seven, he said this. The best I have reserved is for the last. Right? The, the, The best pearl, the best blessing I reserve for last. Out of the seven treasures for the Christian, the last is best, is better than all, that though, that, sorry, that through what I have already spoken be everything. That is, that we can bless God. It is a joy to have heaven. It is a joy to possess a new life. It is a joy to be fitted for heaven. But the greatest of all joy is to have God and having God to bless God. That is what the resurrection secures. Everlasting blessing. Blessing in trials, blessing in the heights of glory, blessing in the trivial, the mundane, and blessing when all is going well. Blessing in the good days and the bad days an inheritance kept for us in heaven, and we are kept for God for that inheritance, all through the power of the resurrection. Maybe you can't truly understand the depth of the resurrection. Maybe we were not meant to. Maybe instead we're just meant to bless God, to worship God, to just revel in the reality that through that resurrection, through Christ's vindication, we now can have our inheritance of God and the salvation that pour forth from his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we are grateful for the privilege of gathering today and just thinking and meditating on the importance of the resurrection, Lord. And that that resurrection means that we one day too will rise with Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for all that you're doing in and through this church, Lord. We pray that, that, that this Easter, that we'd ha- in a greater way, a deeper way, would understand the person and work of Jesus Christ and that having known and understood it in a deeper way, we might live in light of it. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.